0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park
1: restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. In just a bit, the food and dining reporters at the Trib tell us about the area's best Middle Eastern dishes. But first, the U.S. trade war with China rolls on, and the country is no closer to ending the war than we were when it started last year. Meanwhile, the president says tariffs on Chinese goods are hurting China, but not hurting us.
2: We're taking in many billions of dollars. There's been absolutely no inflation, and frankly, it hasn't cost our consumer anything. It costs China.
1: But who's paying the price, and how is all of this affecting Illinois producers and consumers? Cecile Shea is a former U.S. diplomat and a senior fellow on global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Shea says that the way the administration is framing this isn't exactly correct.
3: Let's go back and say that currencies fluctuate all the time, and China's economy um, seems to be slowing down a bit, and so it's not surprising that its currency would fluctuate a very small amount. We also have to say that President Trump's own Treasury Department in June ruled that China is not a currency manipulator. And, you know, monetary policy is something very specific, and I don't pretend to be an expert, so I've just read a lot of articles the last week or so from people who are experts. And not a single person believes that China is manipulating its currency. They believe that what has happened where it it dipped a small amount is kind of part of the normal fluctuations in, in the way currency trading works. So to suddenly, two months after his own Treasury Department said that China is not manipulating its currency, come out and say that China is manipulating its currency, really seems to just be a political stunt, another way that he tries to bully opponents into doing what he wants. And We are where we are today with our China trade policy, specifically because in international diplomacy, especially with a large, relatively wealthy country with a proud history like China. Bullying does not work. It just backfires. And it has completely backfired on the president with the tariffs.
1: Well, let's talk about who this trade war is affecting and who will be affected in the near future, starting with Illinois farmers.
3: Yeah. So the farmers are really hurting um, throughout the northern Midwest, particularly in states that grow a lot of soybeans. So you're talking about Illinois and Iowa. China was by far their largest market for soybeans. And um, their export's There have dropped, I believe, 53% so far. And now China is saying it's not going to import any agricultural products as of last week in retaliation for the newly announced set of tariffs um, that the president announced last week. And what farmers are starting to realize is that because this is dragging on, they may not return to the status quo ante when this is over. And that's because other countries in Latin America, certainly Canada and Australia, have dramatically increased their soybean production, are exporting to China. And now that Chinese wholesalers realize that they can buy a good product from Canada, a more reliable product, because they aren't worried that there's going to be another trade war with Canada or with Australia, they may not come back to their U.S. sources. And so that's going to be a real problem. Corn prices are falling very rapidly for farmers. And that is in part because in order to get the federal bailout money that that the president has, has now come through with two years in a row for farmers, in order to get that money, the farmers have to plant crops anyway, even though they know they're going to have trouble selling them. And then when the prices drop, they're able to get some of that money. So there's just a glut of corn on the market. We export normally a lot of corn to China for feed. We also export a lot of hogs and um, and pork to China, and that's been cut off now. So the prices of corn have really dramatically fallen in the last week or two also.
1: Well, I want to hear from a farmer right here in Illinois. This is sixth generation farmer Evan Halting in Princeton. Uh, that's a in north-central Illinois. And and he says this is what he'd say if he could talk to President Trump.
0: I'd tell him that, you know, we've supported him from the get-go on trying to bring China to the table and make them more accountable for their practices. But uh, every day that this ticks on, farmers are the ones that are taking it on the jaw. You know, we appreciate the support he's given farmers. Uh, Farm bankruptcies are up all over. And, you know, we're just not in an economy that can handle... This stress much longer.
1: So there are some farmers who are criticizing the president. Many continue to support him. At the same time, we're seeing an increase in farm foreclosure. I, I just wonder: is there a tipping point where it will be maybe too difficult for a lot of farmers to recover here in the state?
3: Yeah, because remember they've taken two hits yeah. over the last two years: it's tariffs and weather. And weather was really a problem this year. The question is, when do they start selling out to large conglomerates? Because the large conglomerates are in a much better position to hold on. And there was an article in the Des Moines Registry yesterday that interviewed some farmers. And, and some of them said, not only are they have they lost faith in Trump and they're looking for another candidate in the next election... But they just don't see how they can continue on like this for another year. So that's really serious. Others of them said that you know they trust the president and they think he's doing the right thing. And it's basically their patriotic duty to take these losses. So it's not clear what the political ramifications are yet in farm country. What is very clear is that people are hurting. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk about Illinois consumers and, and where we're seeing the tariffs hit consumers.
3: One of the reasons that the president can kind of get away with saying some of the things like you play, like were played in your intro, is that people don't necessarily see them directly. And just to be clear, China is not paying the tariffs; um, the tariffs are paid by the importers. Literally, the U.S. Customs Service charged the importer at the you know, at the port of entry, whatever fee it is, 10% or 25% to import the goods. Now, what has happened is for the the first round of tariffs, which initially were 10% and then went up to 25% in June, a lot of the importers were able to get the manufacturers to lower their costs, to cut their own margins and then and then the big stores the the big box stores were able to cut their margins on those products so the prices didn't go up too much now the smaller specialty stores you know if all you sell is flooring and your flooring costs are going up dramatically, you can't go down to a zero margin on flooring. That's all that you sell. So prices um, are starting to go up in some of those places. Now, the 25% tariffs, which just kind of went into effect over the last six or eight weeks, we're not going to see those prices right away. They will be in the next month or two. But because all the low-hanging fruit was already taken, some of that 15% is going to have to be passed on to consumers. Now, the new tariffs that were just announced are 10% on pretty much everything else, including toys, toys, Clothing and footwear. And so companies with access to capital, companies with cash on hand, were worried about this and so started importing for Christmas months ago. So they have things in their warehouse and there are things on ships now that will probably get here before the tariffs hit. And so we might not see too many of the price increases for Christmas Again, who's going to be hurt are small merchants, and that's the tragedy of all of these tariff wars and trade wars. The first the first people to be hurt are small independent sellers. So if you own a small toy shop or a small dress shop, you may have not have been able to get a line of credit to import things early. And so you may have to raise your prices at Christmas depending on – where your supply is right now, if it's already on the way here or not. But
1: even for those larger businesses, is there some risk there? Oh, absolutely. And sort of stocking your shelves, hoping consumers come out for the Christmas season, when if people are checking their retirement balances, they may be feeling a little, uh.
3: You are absolutely right. And who knows what the next big toy is, right? So one of the beauties of kind of just-in-time shipping has always been, if whatever the Cabbage Patch dolls of this year are, um, suddenly hit, uh, companies can put a huge order into China. They can go 24-hour shifts, put a lot on a ship or even a plane and get them here and get them here in time. And now it's going to cost more because for sure it's going to cost 10% more for those kind of just-in-time orders. But yes, there's a lot of risk. And one one of... Another of the sad things is the president had promised that these tariffs will return manufacturing to the U.S. Well, no company is going to build a new manufacturing plant, say, let's say vinyl flooring. Very interesting article in The Wall Street Journal yesterday about an importer of luxury vinyl flooring. And um, there's only one manufacturer in the U.S., so most of this comes from from China. And you say, well, maybe that manufacturer will dramatically increase his production. Now, well, it takes years to build a factory and to buy the equipment, a lot of investment into building that kind of equipment, very specialized machines. And he doesn't know if the tariffs are going to end tomorrow or three years from now. So it's not that manufacturing is moving back here. Where manufacturing is moving is out of China and into Vietnam and Singapore and other Trans-Pacific Partnership countries. So – and that is hurting Chicago because you have Chicago-based companies that instead of investing in their employees and giving raises and Christmas bonuses this year are having to build new manufacturing plants in Vietnam or Singapore or maybe Chile um, and and just to build redundant manufacturing that they really wouldn't have needed if it hadn't been for this trade war.
1: Part of the work you do at the Council on Global Affairs is about diplomacy. And and I'm curious (laughs) – we'll see tweets from president trump or or we'll hear you know him make a statement to the press but behind the scenes How much do those statements affect the work the diplomats are doing?
3: It affects it a lot, both in terms of with the government officials directly, who he is insulting publicly, but also with the public, because a a lot of any embassy or consulate's job overseas is doing PR, PR for the United States, getting people to like the United States, getting people wanting to buy U.S. products, getting people wanting to tour the United States or study in the United States. And when you have a president insulting an entire nation, how do you counteract that? You know, um, I have heard that the current um, retirement course, which is a course people take their last month before they retire from the Foreign Service, is the largest ever. So that gives you a sign of the fact that people are just weary. You know, People want to do their jobs. They, they went into diplomacy and related fields because they believe in this country. They have a patriotic attitude toward this country. And it's getting very hard for them to do their jobs. You know, The president looks at the world as a zero-sum game. He has to win. And diplomats, by nature, look at the world as, let's make sure that everybody wins," which is also what a lot of successful businessmen do, right? They try to come up with agreements where you'll be a winner and I'll be a winner, where everybody comes out ahead. And the president just is not interested in doing that, and it's ultimately hurting our own economy. Um, our economy should be a lot stronger than it is right now, given the debts that we're in the deficit that we're running.
1: Are there things diplomatically that you see the U.S. doing well
3: right now? You know, there is a time for tough talk in certain situations. So what I wish the president had had done is is a little bit of what he has done from time to time on North Korea, which is talk tough but also try to work with them. I mean, it's just weird when he says nicer things about North Korea than Japan. I mean, that's just way over the top. But I I do think that there was probably a role for someone with his personality in dealing with China if he had just been smarter with the tariffs, you know. So there was no question that we needed to – toughen our relationship with China in various ways, as President Obama did. To be fair, he really got much tougher on China and Russia in his second term. So that was okay. But you need to also temper that with a certain amount of realism and a certain amount of of knowledge of how fundamental economics work. And that's been missing from a lot of the president's policies.
1: Well, we have to say many people, even the president's detractors, agree with some of Trump's basic uh, understanding of the situation, concerns about China stealing intellectual property. Absolutely. There's an issue around security. Uh, Huawei, China wants a deal whereby this telecom giant can have access to the U.S. market And there's concern about what that would mean for U.S. security. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts specifically around that security question?
3: I am deeply concerned about Huawei's capabilities and about the national security impact. So I, I do think that on, on this, the president is listening, listening to the people around him, the intelligence experts. It's one of the reasons why we need good people in the office of the um, director of national intelligence. And so I'm very concerned about the changes that are going on there. He needs really, really top people who are both able to make smart decisions and recommendations, but also speak to Silicon Valley in a way that they will understand. And we've lost some of those people recently.
1: That's Cecile Shea, former U.S. diplomat and senior fellow on global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Cecile, it's always great to have you in. Great to be
3: here. Thanks so much, Jen.
1: Dining reporters at the Tribune have a really, really hard job. For their monthly series, Craving, they have to scour the city to find the best places to eat. They've explored French cuisine in the city, Korean food, restaurants on the south side... Desserts. I mean, it's a heavy lift. But this month, it's all about the best places for Middle Eastern cuisine in Chicago. And here with a rundown of what they found, our Tribune food and dining reporters, Louisa Chu, Grace Wong, and Nick Kindlesberger. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for feeling our pain. We I really do. I here. mean, gosh, I was getting ready for this segment. I was like, oh, the suffering. <laughs> Louisa, why did the Trib Food and Dining team decide to take on Middle Eastern food this month?
0: I mean, of course, there have been a lot of really favorite neighborhood Middle Eastern restaurants across the city and in the suburbs. But then also recently, we've really seen some beautiful Israeli-inspired and Mediterranean-inspired restaurants. And we thought it was really time to really focus on that for at least a whole
1: month. And we have to say, I mean, we're talking about a huge, a huge region mm-hmm. um, yeah. with a lot of different food traditions. So Nick, did you all... Have any parameters or did you just jump on in?
2: Oh, yeah. We had to set very strict
1: parameters (laughs) because it got out
2: of hand very quickly. Um, So we decided – we settled on – there are many definitions of what Middle Eastern is. And so we settled on Turkey to the north, down to Yemen in the south, Egypt to the west, and Iran To the east. And so that still left us way more than we Mm -hmm. could possibly hope to cover. But that's a good thing. You should be excited that there's way too much to cover. Um, It shows you how exciting this region is. And, Grace, any specific dishes
1: come to mind?
4: Um, I'm obsessed with Lubna, Mm. um, which is basically like ultra strained yogurt. It's all those things I talk about. It's cooling, it's calming, it goes with sweet and savory. You can eat it on its own, you can eat it in the morning. It's just, it's a
1: perfect food, this in my may, opinion. <laughs> some people may consider this a sin, but on a baked potato, my goodness, it is, <laughs> it is delightful. Well, it's it's, high that, in protein. it's that acidic thing that can yeah. cut
2: through the in tang. heavy dishes, yeah. and it can cool you down. There's so many things like that in Middle Eastern food that... Um, Help to balance the meal, I guess. And um, I've just become obsessed with it now, so I want it all the time. <laughs> I don't care what I'm eating. I want some yogurt on the side, and cucumbers, and tomatoes, mm-hmm. and those kind of things. Oh,
1: gosh, it's too early for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Louisa, did you find uh, a concentration of restaurants in a certain neighborhood, or did you? Or were they kind of spread out all over the city? You know, in the city, there
0: are luckily quite a few areas where there are restaurants, but we've been making quite a few visits to the uh, village of Bridgeview on the southwest side of Chicago, where there is a burgeoning, there has been for a generation, Arab-American community. And uh, we have to say we discovered a restaurant that um, just opened about five months ago that might (laughs) be one of our new favorites. We were kind of trying to keep it secret until our review comes out, but a restaurant called Uzi Corner, and it is a Mediterranean restaurant that's kind of modern and new looking, loft-like, very beautiful. But that relies, is inspired by these ancient cuisines of Syria and Jordan and Lebanon. And um, speaking of breakfast, actually, one of the things we found, you know, is that a lot of times one of the biggest meals that you'll have in the Middle East, especially this time of the year, is at breakfast. And so, for example, I recently had the Uzi breakfast, which they say they serve Zaman style. And I was like, what does that mean? And they said that is the Turkish word for time. And I was like... And so we had this long conversation over many cups of tea and this huge spread. And basically it is dish after dish of house-cured olives and the labneh. they serve their Lubna little balls and then also the two kinds of pita bread. Talk about that. So <laughs> actually, and I'd ask them because what the first one they serve, which is complimentary at the table, it's like a lo- elongated piece of bread, very thin flat bread, which we, I mean, we're a Chicago town so we know gyro, right? Uh, Euros. Yeah. And so,
1: <laughs> it's elongated. I flinched a little bit there. <laughs>
0: right, I know. Gyro, gyro. And, um, but they bake it so it's crispy on the edge Edge. And then they serve it with a complimentary little dip of uh, spicy uh, feta cheese. Mm-hmm. And then with the meal itself, they serve their house-baked soft rounds of pita bread. And so those were a little bit more familiar. However, what we're also seeing with the rise of some of the finer Middle Eastern restaurants, and actually, you know, with immigration patterns, is people are so stepping up their game on the pita as well. What we have seen with Eros, which is fine, fantastic, is really kind of like the, you know, what we all know of a sandwich bread compared to what is like an artisan style of pita that you're really seeing across restaurants now. Well,
1: there's something really magical about the little pillows of, mm. of pita mm. that come out fresh. Yes. And a dish of olive oil. And you mm. could just, you could just tuck me in and, and put me <laughs> straight to bed. Yeah, they be, like are gravity defying. I'd be quite happy. Uh, Nick, talk about some of the prep um, and work that goes in, into the guy because it's not just about finding restaurants you also have to learn something about the places you're exploring right oh
2: absolutely so i have a stack of books on my desk that's about (laughs) 30 high right now of different things so i'm reading that and then i'm working on a thing about sandwiches in the middle east and i've been to 24 Four, 25 restaurants so far. I'm going to go to a few more just to make sure. And <laughs> because then, you
1: have to. Because like, I have,
2: you have to. You know, there's some great Israeli restaurants in Highland Park, all the way down to Palos Park on the south side. Um, south suburbs, and um, you just have to eat as much as you can to realize because there's so many differences. Um, So up in uh, Highland Park, there's Mizrahi Grill, and their pita is just like a pillow. I just want to curl up, like you're saying. It's so soft. And um, then Galit, which just opened in Lincoln Park, Mm -hmm. has this pita that is a little firmer, but it it opens up, and um, it's just this beautiful Bread. It's so good. I nearly made myself sick by ordering <laughs> as much. They were like, Do you want more? And I'm like, just keep it coming. Just you mentioned Kalos
1: Park, was there a place there that stood out for you?
2: Actually, just south of there is Worth. And um, so they have fatouche, mm. which they use for their sandwiches. Instead of pita bread, they use this bread called Markook bread. And it's a very thin flat bread, and it's speckled brown and white. I had no idea this existed before a few weeks ago, but I've become obsessed with it. It has this elasticity where it can stretch around ingredients without breaking. So they wrap up um, their shawarma in it. And um, it looks like a little burrito, but it is wrapped up with pickles and tomatoes and onions and then tahini. And uh, that's just one of the greatest sandwiches
1: I've found. Grace, what were some of the standouts for you? Um, so I have a sweet tooth.
4: So I let the savory <laughs> savory things up to um, <laughs> Nick and Louisa, and I just went straight for like things covered in honey syrup and rose water (laughs) and phyllo dough. A lot of people know what baklava is, but um, one of my favorites is kanafe, which is, I want to say, like, cheesecake, but not because it's, like, crispy on top, and then there's just this, like chewy ooey gooey warm cheese in the middle and it's just covered in syrup and like some nuts and it's amazing we've seen so many different versions of it so far um, Mm -hmm. in our search
0: And was there a place where you really
4: loved that dish?
0: Uh, (laughs) Can I just say that I'm very inclusive. I like sweet and the savory. She's saying uh, this because
2: I'm a a noted sweets hater (laughs) so I
0: kind of bridge between the two A couple of restaurants we've also already mentioned. Galit actually does a um, modern almost market-inspired dessert, using that as a base, where they had beautiful raspberries. Not normally, This is not normally traditionally a dish that you'll see fruit on, because it is a very perishable item. Fruit, you know, you don't typically see that. But what he's doing there, Zachary Engel is the chef and partner there. He's using traditional Israeli food, but he's in, uh, he's putting his own stamp on it by, for example, putting the fresh fruit, some seasonal items, but also with his hummus, which is a dish that I've really, I'm working on a story about That right now, he has a dish that he called his identity crisis hummus, which was absolutely (laughs) fascinating. And I didn't get that; it was the mushroom hummus. Like, what does that mean? Until I had it, and I nearly was moved to tears. It was this incredibly smooth, cloud-like puff of pita bread, and then the, the the smooth hummus, which they peel every single chickpea in house, and then he tops that with collard greens and chicken cracklins, and then a little bit of spice that I swear tasted just like Frank's hot sauce. And I talked to him about that, and I said, you know, to me, that tasted like you invited me over to your backyard, and I had some of your grandma's recipe hummus, and then we also put on, piled on the plate, and then all the flavors just kind of mixed together on the plate, and then he said, That was what I was going for. And so that's the kind of level that we're seeing really the Middle Eastern from the ancient to the
1: modern moving through in Chicago right now. So this guide, as I said, is part of the Chicago Tribune's Food and Dining Craving Series. But are there any places really quickly that you couldn't include in the guide that you think are still worth mentioning? Oh, boy. So many.
0: We're trying to get to all of them, really. <laughs> yeah, we're and running, if, yeah. running out of time. <laughs> we're still working on
1: it. But, you know, you can follow
0: along on our progress daily at ChicagoTribune.com slash dining slash cravings. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I'd that- like
2: to rep for uh, Ali Alibaba. This place is a donor kebab, so it's Turkish, but he's from Germany. So it's a German version of Turkish food. And he is making this donor kebab, and I've never seen anyone care so much about what a sandwich does. You know when you go to some fast food places, they just toss in the, the ingredients. and They get lopsided, so you get a bite of hummus, but there's nothing else. He layers everything perfectly, so each bite has all the ingredients. It's one of the, my favorites, for all sure. All
1: right. Well, you can check it all out at the, Chica- at the Chicago com slash dining site. That's where you'll find the Cravings Food Guide. And we've been talking to Tribune Food and Dining reporters Louisa Chu, Grace Wong, and Nick Kindlesberger. Thanks so much for coming by and let's talk about what you're going to do next month when you get there. I'll let you leave with Full Bellies today. And now that you're incredibly hungry, we'll wrap up today's show and let you track down your new favorite kebabs, hummus, and other Middle Eastern goodies. But are you subscribed to the podcast? If not, go ahead and do it now, and you'll never miss an important or fun conversation about what's happening in and around Chicagoland. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.